We're going to be talking about waiting today. And the title of this little talk is Worth the Wait. And as part of this series of messages we're doing on life without water wings, the idea of getting out of the boat when Peter joins Jesus on the water, on the Sea of Galilee. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me on your Bible, your hard copy or your device to Matthew chapter 12, rather chapter 14. And we're going to read the passage again, beginning in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? But when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Waiting patiently is not something our society is generally known for. I came across this little book by a guy named Robert Levine. And the book is called A Geography of Time. And in the book, he suggests a brand new unit of time that he has coined the term, he calls it the Honko second. The Honko second, as he defines it, is the time between when the light turns green and the person behind you honks their horn. And he suggests that this is the smallest measure of time known to science. How well? How well do you wait? I wonder how many of you are frustrated right now waiting for me to continue. <laughs> I don't wait well. Let's say, let's say you're in the grocery checkout line and the person in front of you decides to have an extended conversation with the cashier. Are you A... Happy they are experiencing the grocery checkout line in community. You're thinking about walking up, joining them, and starting a new small group. (laughs) Or B, are you dreaming of things you'd like to say to the grocery clerk that you know you'll have to apologize to them for later? Or C, 
Are you thinking about attempting to drive and ram your cart between the person and the grocery line beside you? Most of us don't like to wait. And we've gotten very comfortable with a sort of a horn honking, microwave, express checkout society. And we like this passage when we read it because the first word is immediately. And the word immediately appears three times in the passage. And it appears as you read this passage that Jesus is the Lord of urgent action. He doesn't seem to waste even a honko second in this passage. And yet if you read the passage closely, it's also a story about waiting. A story about waiting. You recall that he's fed the approximately 15,000 people. And he goes to the edge of the Sea of Galilee and he says to his disciples, go out into the boat in verse 22. And he says, immediately do this. And it says in the passage and in the context that he does this sometime before evening. So sometime before sunset. But then as you continue reading down through the passage, it says he then goes up on a hill to pray, and there's hills all around the Sea of Galilee. And later, in the fourth watch of the night, the passage says he appears to them. And the fourth watch of the night doesn't appear, doesn't begin until between 3 and 6 a.m. And so they spend as much as nine plus or minus hours waiting for him. And we look in a parallel passage, and in those nine hours, they've only progressed halfway across the lake. And it's not that wide. Like I said last, in these previous weeks, at the widest part, it's eight miles across. And it could just be that Jesus, and now Matthew who records this, wants to teach us something about waiting. So let's just decide and suggest and believe that as we've talked about in this series, you've decided to get down out of the boat and take off the water wings that are perched here on the little speaker at the front and step out of the boat because you've recognized a number of reasons that God would want you to do this. The primary one is because the water is where Jesus is and you've heard God's call. You've taken the appropriate step of faith or steps of faith, whatever that is. Maybe you're saying, I'm going to invest in community in a very significant way because I realize living the Christian life alone is not how God intended. So I'm going to step into my small group. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be part of an F table or a triad, and I'm going to progress in, in community in my relationship with Christ or maybe he said, I want you to leave the job you're part of. You're sure of this and God has something else for you. Or maybe he said, you know that gift that I've seeded into your life that you've never used and that you're kind of afraid to use. You're going to step out in Jesus name and you're going to use it or you're going to take a relational risk that you thought you and knew you were supposed to take. But the thought of being rejected really scares you. Or maybe you're going to go back to school to pursue that dream that God has put in your heart to do, but you never had the courage to do. What happens next? 
Well, maybe it goes incredibly well. And the step of faith is immediately confirmed. And everything goes away, goes the way you would imagine it was supposed to go in your mind. But that's not usually the case. For good reasons, God does not move. And a friend of mine suggested this to me here a couple weeks ago. We're often prone to go through life, and he used these words, at a frenetic pace. But the God of the Bible is in, he's more interested in a sacred pace. We like to move at a frenetic pace. He wants us to move at a sacred pace. John Workberg, in commenting on this, said, we are too often double espresso followers of a decaf sovereign. Double espresso followers of a decaf sovereign. All the Starbucks people are just smiling right now. A lot of waiting in life. I'm going to guess that there isn't a person in here Someone said this to me before the service. There isn't a person in here or listening online that isn't waiting in some way, shape, or form right now. And some of it is about reasonably, you know, trivial things, but some of it's much ser- pretty serious stuff. You're praying, you're waiting for that child that's out of healthy relationship with God. You're praying and waiting for them to bow the knee to Jesus and be all in with him. Or you're praying for that spouse that's never given their life to Christ. Or you're a childless couple that desperately wants a family. Or you're waiting for that opportunity in the employment world to step into what God seems to have put in your heart to do something that would be meaningful and significant, and yet you still can't seem to find it. Or you're that somewhat awkward child who wants to get picked first on the playground, and you're always picked last. Or you're an elderly person in a nursing home watching this morning, alone, and seriously ill, and waiting to die. We're all waiting. Lewis Meads wrote, waiting is the hardest work of hope. And yet the God of the Bible, when you read his book, he's always calling on us to wait. He keeps saying to his people, wait. He comes to Abraham when he's 75 years old. He says, hey man, you've never been able to have a family. Guess what? You're going to be a father. And you are not only going to be a father, but you are going to create an incredibly large nation of people. Um, You can't even count them. There'll be so many. But you're going to wait for that to happen. And he waits 24 more years. Or God tells the nation of Israel, hey, you're going into slavery in Egypt, but don't worry, I'm going to deliver you, but you're going to wait 400 years. The whole of the Old Testament, if you think about it in an overarching way, the whole of the Old Testament is about waiting for Messiah to come. 
All of the Old Testament era, the 400 years called the intertestamental period, they're waiting for Jesus to come. And now the New Testament era of which we are a part is all about waiting for him to come again. There's a lot of waiting that goes on in the scripture. And Paul in the book of Romans says this, not in chapter 8, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 43 times in the Old Testament, the people are told to wait on the Lord. This expression is seen frequently in the New Testament, at the book of, in the book of Revelation in chapter 22. It's all about waiting And Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And it may not seem like it, but in the light of eternity, it is soon. So why does God make us wait? Why does he so frequently make us wait? Ben Patterson says this, what God does does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we are waiting for. I've shared this little illustration before, but it's a great illustration of this. It's a a psychological test that was done a number of years ago called the marshmallow test. You've probably heard of it. They gathered a whole group of four-year-old children. They put them in individually in a room one at a time. And of course, there's a bunch of researchers taking notes behind the one-way mirror cameras on the kid. And in the room, they put all these really delicious, fresh marshmallows. The researcher comes in, he puts one marshmallow in front of the kid. And he says to him, listen, I have to go away for just a short time. I won't be gone for too long, but I got to go out of the room for a few minutes. And you've got a choice. You can eat that one marshmallow right now while I'm out of the room. But if you will wait until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. So will you wait and only and get two or eat it right now, scarf it down right now and get one? And so then the researcher leaves the room and they're all furiously taking notes, washing them, watching the kids. Some of the kids sang songs. Some of them told stories to themselves. Some of them played with their fingers. One kid even picked up the marshmallow and licked the table <laughs> right where the marshmallow was. The interesting thing is that they then charted the lives of these kids for years to come and did testing on them. And they said the kids that were willing to wait and get two marshmallows grew up without question to be more socially adept, better able to cope with stress, less likely to give up under pressure. The kids that just caved right away and scarfed down the first one grew up to be more stubborn, more resentful, more easily frustrated. The kids that waited for the two mushrooms, they wrote college entrance exams, and they scored very much higher on average than the ones that ate the one. Paul writes in the scriptures, 
that while we are waiting for God to set everything right, and that's an incredible promise from God, he is going to come back one day and he is going to set everything right. The righteous judge, the holy judge, will set everything right. Paul says that one day, we're, we, right now, we are waiting for God to set everything right. But while that is taking place, we suffer. But that that suffering produces endurance. And that endurance produces character. And that character produces hope. Things that he seeks to develop in us as we wait. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, first of all, biblical waiting is not sitting around waiting passively for something to happen. Sitting around hoping that somehow we can just almost accidentally escape our trouble. And sometimes I'll come across people and they'll say something like this to me. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And they, and, and that can be a good thing, but in some of these cases, they're using it as an excuse not to face reality, not to be responsible, not to take clearly laid out biblical appropriate action. And so, for example, someone will come and they just have really poor financial habits. They, they spend impulsively. They refuse to save. They're in this huge financial mess. And then they'll trot out this quasi-spiritual expression, I'm just waiting for the Lord to provide. And that does not mean waiting for money to fall from the sky. What it means is it means learning biblical stewardship principles. To understand that God's entrusted you with this and you are expected, I'm expected, to be wise stewards of it. Not to just blow money impulsively. Not to live way beyond your means. And so biblical waiting is not a way to evade evade unpleasant realities. It means saying, God, I may not understand this, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you even when circumstances appear not to be turning out the way I had anticipated. And it may, in fact, never turn out exactly the way I thought it was going to. I'm still going to trust you. I'm a little afraid, but I'm going to trust you. So what does it look like to wait well? For the disciples to be in that boat, pitching up on these huge waves for around nine hours. What does it look like to wait well? Well, it means patient trust. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. It says in the Psalms, it's like a day, a thousand years or a watch in the night, a three hour period in the night. So like, It's just saying that God created time. He is above time. And he doesn't operate the way we do in this finite amount of time. He's in time and yet he's above time. You've heard the old joke probably. This is an old joke. Lord, is it true that a thousand years for you is 
for us is like a, a minute to you? Yes. Then is it also true that a million dollars to you, God, to us, God, must be just like a penny to you, God? And God says, yes. Well, Lord, would you give me one of those pennies? And God says, sure, just give me a minute. You see, we want God's resources, but we do not often want his timing. You know, and so we're like this. Oh, I really want your resources. I want it to go this certain way, but I'm not so sure I really want to listen to what you have to say about my life in the process. Forgetting that his work in us is as important as what we think we are waiting for. Probably more important. And so God says, would you give me the benefit of a doubt that I know what I'm doing? And so there may be, for example, some single people here, although almost 60 of our young adults are out at retreat this morning with Pastor Dylan, they're starting their worship service right around now out at Crow's Nest. But there may be some singles here today who are open to God's leading regarding marriage and right now are quite content. So they'd be open to being married, but they're quite content. But they'd be willing to wait until they die if God says, I'm going to invite you to be single. But there may be others that are not prepared to follow the Lord's leading in this. And there's this potential relationship out there, right at their fingertips. But in their heart, they know this would not be honoring to God. And God's question for that second group is, are you willing to wait? You say, Lord, I will not enter into a relationship that will dishonor you and bring damage to everyone involved, directly or indirectly, yourself, the other person, their family, their friends, possibly their church community. And so I'm going to trust you for day, today, Lord, not knowing what tomorrow holds. Even though, and this is just being honest with God, and it's okay to be honest with God, even though sometimes I feel like no no one understands the pain I'm in right now. I trust you. Or maybe there's a certain goal you feel that God's put in your heart to do, and it's just not happening, and you don't know why it hurts so much, and you're tempted to try and force it, or to kind of scheme your way through it, or manipulate your way through it to get what you think you want or need. And God says, would you just trust me? Having the character to refrain from eating the one marshmallow is one of the toughest tests in the world. It also means waiting on the Lord requires hope, biblical kind of hope. And so if we're waiting on God and we're, we're busy obeying him, yet we haven't seen the results yet, I invite you to hear this wonderful promise. There's this verse in the Old Testament. I just love this verse. It's all about waiting. It says it's from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 31, he says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. 
They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I have a book or two on my shelf in my library from a guy named David Hubbard. He's sort of a famous Old Testament scholar. He died a few years ago, and in a letter he wrote just a few weeks before he died, he said, we must live these words in commenting on those verses, that verse. Soar, he wrote, soaring, running, walking. And he wrote this one line at a time. And then he commented and he said, you know, birds have basically three methods of flight. One is flapping furiously, kind of like a hummingbird that's in constant motion. It's a lot of work, but it eventually gets them there. The second is gliding, where birds build up uh, an excessive amount of speed and then they coast for a while. And gliding is, is nice, but it eventually peters out and it doesn't last. And soaring is what only a very few birds can do, and that is like an eagle, and an eagle is so strong they can catch rising currents of warm air without moving a feather. And Isaiah Hubbard writes, says, when we hope or we wait on the Lord, at times we're going to soar. Absolutely. And, and you could be at that point in life right now. Could have taken off the water wings, gotten out of the boat, you're walking on the water, and God's answering your prayer in an extremely generous way, like our God likes to do. And, and Hubbard would say, be grateful for that and keep on walking in the spirit. Keep praying, keep being obedient, keep being deeply grateful that you're able to soar because of Christ. But Isaiah says at times, even though we're hoping and waiting on the Lord, we won't be soaring. But we are able to run and not grow weary. And perhaps we're not seeing a lot of miracles. There, there may be some frustration, but... You know God's pleasure that he has in you, in your obedience. And so keep on running, keep on serving, keep on giving, keep on praying. Don't compare yourself with someone else who's soaring. Because always remember, God never compares us to other people, only to himself. And it's so wonderful because he sees us through Jesus, right? The third condition he talked about, he says, are those that are hoping and waiting on the Lord, but they're sometimes not soaring. Sometimes they're not able to run because of, of doubt or pain or failure. All they can do is walk and not faint. And they're desperately hanging on to Jesus and putting one step in front of the other. And they're candidly saying, uh, I don't seem too fruitful right now. I don't even seem all that productive right now. But I will not stop walking. And at that point, walking is enough. And when we're really tempted to quit, but we say, God, with your help, I won't quit. And I'll keep on putting that one foot in front of the other. I'll take up my cross daily. I'll follow you. Hubbard writes this. I thought this was cool. He says, maybe God prizes walking even more than soaring and running. Maybe God prizes walking even more than soaring and running. And the reality is the pathway is not absolutely clear on some of these things. My sister-in-law 
Barb writes, Barb Cooper writes poetry. She's pretty good at it. And she actually sent us a poem, our family, this week. And it's based out of her Bible reading. Um, she, she was reading in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 7, and it says, notice the way God does things, then fall into line. Don't, fa- don't fight the ways of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? And so she was reflecting and meditating on this verse And she wrote this poem, and she entitled it, God Loves Mazes. Say, have you ever noticed, perhaps you don't, I do, that God arranges many things a little bit askew. A slight detour here and there, a backtrack, if you please, and one ends up meandering on several trails like these. In fact, with all those sidesteps slowed down sometimes to a crawl, we're really quite amazed to find we've gotten there at all. So why not as the crow flies straight forward by the way, and yet he likes the picturesque, though I chafe at delay. But then if I take over what seems to be a hitch, I stride into a muddy mire and fall into the ditch. He mildly lifts his eyebrows, and when at last I heed, he stretches down a hand and asks if I might let him lead. I've come to the conclusion I'd best enjoy the view, for though the Lord can be direct, he loves the mazes too. Every time we engage in the battle, every time we resist sin, Every time you proclaim the gospel, every time you give sacrificially a portion of your resources for the spread of the gospel, every time you offer a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, every time you care deeply for the person in your small group, in your if table, in your triad, when you pray for them, when you err for them, every time you trust in Jesus' name, every time you wait on the Lord, you will discover it's worth the wait. 